You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. 6,819 votes is nothing to sneeze at. Believe me, I am appreciative of the interest and the voting. Uh, I remember the days when three or 400 people would vote on a daily survey question, and I would be thrilled with that. But we have been getting 9,000-plus votes recently. We don't break 10,000. I mean, on Saturdays with the CNN audience... We go to 20. But here's my point. Yesterday, the subject was the Durham investigation. And so there was a, to me, noticeable decline in the amount of voting on my website when I asked, will the result of John Durham's investigation significantly alter the way a majority of Americans regard the 2016 election? The no votes, by the way, were 86.34 percent. Um, I'm making a different observation than the outcome. The overwhelming number of people who voted on the survey question do not believe that it's going to move the needle in terms of perceptions of the 2016 election. Me, I'm caught up in the fact that there was a decline in the number of people voting, which I am taking as confirmation of my Whitewater Watergate model and Durham goes in the Whitewater category. This thing is just so damn confusing, at least thus far. Maybe when Durham comes out with a report, we will know more. And the vacuum, therefore, gets filled because we all, you know, you want to appear to be knowledgeable. You want to be able to be conversant about public events and affairs. So what do we do? We end up, I think, following the lead of our favorite pundit. And people, therefore, come away believing what they want to believe. Here is a very tight summation that I found as I was reading in today. It comes from a a, a point of view. It comes from a decided perspective. It happens to be the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal is, is very, you know, suspect of these revelations, not suspect as to their legitimacy. They think there's something to it that needs to be pursued. And there might be. So here in three sentences is the way in which the journal sums it up in their lead editorial today. A legal filing Friday by special counsel John Durham says a private contractor aided the Hillary Clinton campaign in concocting the false collusion tale. 
Tech executive Rodney Jaffe worked with other researchers to mine proprietary Internet data, including records from the White House. The filing says Mr. Jaffe could access his data because his employer had a quote-unquote sensitive arrangement with the government to provide Internet services, which Mr. Jaffe exploited to help Team Clinton gather derogatory information about Donald Trump. I mean, that's that's as concise as I can find it anywhere in language that's relatively easily understood. The journal also says in this editorial, um, the Russians were a legitimate 2016 electoral threat. That's important for a reason I'll circle back to in a moment. And then the journal lead editorial on Durham today concludes this way. We don't apologize for thinking all of that is news that readers might like to know about. The mystery is why the rest of the press corps wants everybody to ignore it. And we've talked about this now for the last three days about how this is one of those outsized stories. I look up at my television monitors and yes, Fox News is all over this story. MSNBC and CNN, not so much. And when they do cover it, 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 it's in a dismissive kind of way. I'm left wondering why can't both be true? Both meaning this, that Russia meddled in the election. I mean, I think that's pretty damn clear. The spin that I'm hearing on this by people trying to take advantage of the information or knowledge vacuum, the spin that I'm hearing on this is, see, that whole Russian thing was a hoax. It wasn't a hoax. The Russians meddled, sought to meddle, did meddle in our election. And the probe into the Russian meddling of the election doesn't stem from this Durham business. The investigation began. I mean, I got to jog my own memory. Did I tell you that recently I I couldn't remember for what Donald Trump was first time impeached? I couldn't remember. Like, what what led to it? Here here we are with Ukraine in the news. And and I I mean, it took me a minute, but it came to me without looking it up. It was the perfect phone call in case, by the way, you're wondering what was it. So let me similarly jog your memories. The Russian, the the investigation into Russian meddling began. It's such a an interesting story, and maybe that's why it stands out in my mind. It's it's Papadopoulos. It began when Papadopoulos had a cocktail in London with an Australian diplomat and made claims about Trump having dirt on Hillary. And then when the WikiLeaks information was put into the public domain, all of a sudden the Australian diplomat, I want to say Downer, but maybe the whole story is just a Downer. I don't know. I, I think it was a guy named Downer. And and he now realizes, ooh, you know what? I had a cocktail with that American chap. And he was talking about something like this. I think I better report it. You know, that's, I mean, that's, okay. And then people say, well, it's the dossier, the dossier, the fake dossier, you know, shame on BuzzFeed. And yeah, it it looks like Christopher Steele didn't have his, his act together with a lot of the stuff that was in the dossier. But I have to remind people that dossier may ultimately have been paid for by Hillary, Hillary's campaign. But remember how it began. It began because it was a Rubio supporter in primary season who wanted dirt on Clinton. Pardon me, on Trump, on Trump. So the origin was not and all of these details 
I know it's taxing to remember it all, but they all get lost in they all get lost in translation and whisper down the lane. I mean, the, the, the Trump Fox perspective would have you believe that all of this has origins in what we're now learning about Durham and the lawyer who's been indicted for not telling the FBI the truth. I think there can be elements of legitimacy in stories that benefit both sides is what I'm trying to say. That there, that there is the, the, you know, the Papadopoulos narrative and Downer, the Australian diplomat and the fusion GPS, the, the uh, you know, the, the so-called dossier actually began as op research that Rubio was doing. And at the same time, you've got the law firm that was hiring Hillary, uh, the, uh, representing Hillary's campaign along the way, tries to spin some of what they've learned to the FBI without divulging that their real client is the Clinton campaign. Why are these things all here? This is what I'm trying to say. Why are these things all mutually exclusive? They're not. But the presentation of it is that way. So anyway, it's a whitewater. It's not a Watergate. It's a whitewater. It's not a Watergate. That may change, but it's not yet. It's not yet able to be distilled into a soundbite that in 20 seconds you can explain to someone what it's all about, unless you're misleading, unless you are misleading. I played the Jesse Waters soundbite, yeah, you know, the, the bombshell report. I mean, if you want to if you want to summarize it in a way that's just not accurate, well, you can do that. And there are some who are doing it. Have I confused you even further? Today's survey question at Smirconish.com is on something totally different. You know, I actually blew it. I, a, a survey question popped into my head, speaking of uh, of Trump and speaking of Hillary, and shame on me, it would have been it would have been a really interesting one. Maybe we'll do it tomorrow. Mark Halpern will be here in the second hour of the program, as he always is on a Wednesday, and we're going to talk about Durham and Clinton and Trump and the investigations into Trump. Mark had in his wide world of news on, I think it was Monday. Maybe it was Friday. I think it was Monday. He had a line in his he had a line in his uh, newsletter that said, let's be honest. The most likely 2024 election matchup is a repeat of 2016. Let's be honest, the most likely match. And I have to say, and I know the way his mind works. Um, does that mean that he's predicting that'll be the case? No. No. But he's saying, as of today, the most likely is a Trump-Clinton matchup. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? But that is not the survey question today. Instead, the survey question is about this uh, astonishing $73 million settlement between Remington, the gun manufacturer, and the Sandy Hook families. And I'm asking whether it's the start of a trend from the Hartford current today the families of nine victims of the sandy hook elementary school shooting have agreed to a 73 million dollar settlement of a lawsuit against the maker of the rifle that was used to kill 21st graders and six educators in 2012 it was a bushmaster ar-15 rifle that was used in the massacre They've also agreed to allow the families to release numerous documents they obtained during the lawsuit. That will be interesting. The families 
and a survivor of the shooting sued Remington back in 2015. This has been going on for a while. They say the company should never have sold such a dangerous weapon to the public. And the way in which they, uh, well, it wasn't tried, so I can't say that they won their case, but their argument was it was all about the marketing. It was all about the marketing. There was a particular Remington ad that featured prominently in the litigation showing the rifle against a plane backdrop and the phrase, consider your man card reissued. So this was a civil case in Connecticut. The company objected to the fact that there was even this uh, litigation pending because they say we have federal immunity. There is a federal law that gives broad immunity to the gun industry. In fact, remember this. Remember that in both 20... 16, right? That was Hillary and Bernie and Hillary. Yeah. And again, in 2020, when it's now Biden and Bernie, Bernie Sanders vote for that federal law that gives broad immunity to the gun industry was a a burr in his saddle. And he ultimately said that was, you know, I've I've cast a lot of votes. This is Bernie now saying, um, but that one I regret. Hillary used it against Bernie. Biden used it against Bernie. I'm wondering whether this case is now going to be a roadmap for victims of other mass shootings to circumvent the federal law and be able to sue makers of firearms. Remington has been um, in and out of bankruptcy, but there are four insurers that are now going to be on the hook and pay the $73 million. Something else. There's a lawyer named Josh Koskoff. He was a guest of mine here on POTUS. Anybody remember that in 2018, we spent we called a, a, a particular week in March, Gun Week, and every day had a different guest from a different angle of what I will loosely describe as the gun issue. Well, he was one of my guests and he was my guest then talking about then having filed the lawsuit, this lawsuit that resolved yesterday and indulge me for two minutes because he provides his his outlook of the case. And now we know how it ended. Representing the plaintiffs is trial attorney Joshua Koskoff, who joins me now. Hey, counselor, thank you so much for being here. Who are you suing and what is your theory? Well, there are three gun. First of all, thank you for for your interest in the case. The there are three uh, defendants essentially, but the the kingpin is um, is Remington Arms Company, who are the leading uh, manufacturers of assault rifles for civilians in in the United States and and therefore the world. And what's the theory of the case? Well, there are there are two theories uh, about the case. One is that in uh, the conduct of Remington of targeting youth for their weapons in their effort to expand the market of assault rifles, uh, they clearly targeted a younger demographic, in particular young men who are, by the time they initiated their marketing scheme, clearly there was ample evidence that this was a high-risk user. And they not only targeted them, but they targeted them with um, incendiary marketing techniques uh, through not just copy and imagery, but through first-person shooter games. And they and so 
that kind of conduct um, was not reasonable, we say, and that kind of entrustment is what is known in the law as a negligent entrustment. Give me an example of the sort of targeting that they did, not targeting in a literal sense, but the marketing that right. was trying to reach a younger gun-buying demo. Sure. Um, well, if you look at before the assault weapons ban expired, and you look at before plaque or the immunity was passed, you'll see advertising that some have described about that is about as exciting as a plumbing catalog. Um, because the idea was that people would come, who, that there was a natural uh, attraction to the weapons that the industry didn't have to push them on anybody, because who wouldn't want an assault rifle? Well, it turns out not a lot of people did. And what happened after sort of the perception was of the industry that they were beyond reproach is they they went from a a push type of marketing to a pull marketing and so you have advertisements like uh, get your uh, man card or your man card's been reissued with a picture of an AR15 you have uh the mission adaptable uh, as copy you have combat imagery and um, and then in, in more specifically, they reach young users in on, in the way only modern retailers can, which is through first-person shooter games, through um, we think likely internet searches, and so they are reaching into the living rooms and bedrooms of a high-risk group. Wow, that is such a great piece of audio. Thank God for the archives, huh? Good job, TC Dan, tracking that down. Do you know um, what I'm reminded of? I'm now looking at the I'm looking at the guest list for when we did Gun Week. It's amazing. Not not only was Joshua Koskoff my guest. Uh do you remember because we tried to present all sides of the gun issue. Do you remember the brothers Nugent? And they disagreed with each other, right? And his older brother, Jeffrey, on different sides of the issue, they were a part of it. Amy Howe from SCOTUS blog. Lawrence Tribe from Harvard, John Lott, John Lott, the, uh, uh, you know, the author of More Guns, Less Crime. I mean, talk about being diametrically on different sides of the issue. Uh, the University of Alabama criminology professor, Professor Adam Lankford was my guest. John Donahue from Stanford was my my guest. You know who else was a guest of mine that week? Bruce Castor. Bruce Castor was here in his capacity as the former state solicitor general and acting attorney general of Montgomery County talking about potential charges for a Florida shooter. If that name rings a bell, ladies and gentlemen, beyond Philadelphia, because in Philadelphia people know the name, but if it rings a bell to you because you're in the POTUS audience and you're in Wisconsin or SoCal, he was Donald Trump's lawyer in the impeachment. He was one of Donald Trump's lawyers in the impeachment. He was the one who who gave the initial argument for Donald Trump. Like that one week was a hell of a week, TC. Hey, wh- he was infamous for why a short period of time. Why don't we can we release Gun Week the whole thing as like the mother of all podcasts? Wouldn't that be great? We have to talk to our podcast guru. That would be one Dan, Dan Henning. Yeah. Dan, yeah. please Hi, Dan. let's let's talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We can uh, we can either put them right on the uh, on the app or as a, as a podcast. We could do it one long podcast, do it together, and um, we'd probably have to listen to them. Maybe add some new commentary from the host just to make sure it's. 
context is there, but yeah, I think it's a well, great idea. Well, think about it. Take yeah. a look at that, Dan. TC, send him this this list. It's so impressive. Will do. Anyway, that's today's survey question. I, it took me a long time to get there, but that is today's survey question. Now that you've heard the theory of the case, do you think this is the start of something? Is Remington's $73 million settlement with Sandy Hook families the start of a trend? That is what I am asking you. In other legal news, we talked about this in the first hour of the program yesterday. I've been covering the Palin case uh, pretty closely. Sarah Palin has now lost. She has lost twice. She lost at the hands of the judge and she lost at the hands of the jury from the Associated Press. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin lost her libel lawsuit against the New York Times on Tuesday when a jury rejected her claim that the newspaper maliciously damaged her reputation by erroneously linking her campaign rhetoric to a mass shooting. As you know, because I discussed it at length here, the judge in the case, Jed Rakoff, had already declared that if the jury sided with Palin, he would set aside their verdict. I don't have a problem from a legal standpoint with Judge Rakoff deciding that Sarah Palin had not met her burden, but 24 hours has not changed my view offered here yesterday that the way in which the judge went about it was all wrong. He either should have removed the case before the jury uh, began its considerations with a directed verdict after the plaintiff had rested her case, Or he should have awaited the outcome, and if it had gone a different direction, it would have been a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. It's also my opinion that maybe the the unusual, I'll be kind, the unusual way in which the judge handled this case uh, set her up for an even better appeal. From the get-go, the only thing that I predicted was that the case wouldn't end at the trial level that it would be uh, fodder for an appellate court and potentially the Supreme Court of the United States. Danny Savalos, friend of the program, NBC legal analyst, wrote something that I published at Smirconish.com today from NBC. I, I linked to it. And in Danny's analysis, I'm going to share with you uh, a paragraph from Danny and then the email that I sent to him last night, which did not get a response. <laughs> Danny wrote this, but Rakoff, the judge concluded that Palin failed to present enough evidence that then-Times editor James Bennett met the legal standard for libeling a public figure, that is, that he acted with actual malice, that he knew there was a high probability that the published statements were false, and that he recklessly disregarded that high probability. And I wrote to Danny and I said, yes, that is the way he charged the jury. But I think it compromises the idea of reckless disregard. He is requiring that recklessness include knowledge of falsity. The standard should be knowledge of falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. Was it not reckless for the Times to insert the word incitement regardless of whether they knew it was false. I just want to be heard on this and, and you know, mark the tape. Remember, I am the guy who said, relative to Cosby, relative to Cosby, that I thought that there was an error made in the way he was tried by the disregarding of a deal that was made with the prosecutor. And now you're going to see how all of my worlds collide. And who was the prosecutor? who had made that deal, that's right, 
Bruce Castor, the president's lawyer, and our guest during gun week. I think Palin's got a, a legitimate appeal, is what I'm trying to say. All right, um, ladies and gentlemen, indulge me. There's a lot of news that I have strong opinions about, and I would like to continue uh, parsing these headlines, and I shall do that for you right after this. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors over 37,000 companies have already made the move so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. What do you think about laboratory-grown meat? Laboratory-grown meat. Leading leading the food section of the New York Times. I don't read the food section. It's the only section I don't read. Um, Is it a Henrietta Lacks kind of thing where there are some cells that were originally real meat and now they're growing them? Is that the way it works? Yes. Yes. I'm going to say yes. Okay. Well, I, I think I'm okay with that. I mean, I, as much as I'm, I, I'm, I'm now a Yellowstone fan, <laughs> gonna, I'm not a, go I'm out not there, a you know, grow kill it and kill eat it. it. Grill, what was Ted uh, Nugent's cookbook? Uh, kill it and grill it? Kill it and grill it. Yeah. Is that, if that's the concept, that the concept. Of it, okay, I would rather that concept. I mean, I'm, 
you know, take my man card. I'm not, I'm not killing anything. Until I read the release fish. form, I wasn't concerned about the bite of sautéed chicken breast I was about to eat that had How taken less than three weeks to grow from a few cells inside a laboratory tank to a thick sheet of meat. Well, I got to get taste? over the creepiness part of it. Uh, let's see. She, uh, that, that's further on down in the story. Okay. I just started reading the very beginning. I mean, could you, could you get like a New you. York strip? I think you can get anything. They're even talking about lobster. It would have to be bone out, wouldn't it? Well, presumably. Yeah. I don't know. Come back to me on that. I'm busy, right. I'm busy here. <laughs> okay. Um, hey, Siri, what time is it in Ukraine? It's 4.32 p.m. in Kiev, Ukraine. I, I don't think you launch an invasion in the late afternoon. What is this? War games? Are you kidding I'm me? I'm just thinking. I have D-Day you know, on the brain. Like You do these things at, at, at sunup, on, don't you? No, you do them primetime. Are you kidding me? And the Russians, maybe, maybe, their, maybe their whole system is, is the reverse. I don't know. All I know is this. Thank God. It's 9.32 Philly time. You heard what time it is in Ukraine. It's late afternoon in Ukraine, and there's been no invasion. And, and frankly, nobody knows anything as to what's going on. The president yesterday sought to explain why the crisis matters to Americans. Moscow said that they'd pulled back some troops in a possible sign of flexibility just before I hit the airwaves here on POTUS today. I went to the Associated Press because they seem to have pretty good intel. Uh, They point out that NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg threw cold water on the statements saying the military organization does not see any sign that Moscow is decreasing its troop levels around Ukraine. Do you know I'm going to have coffee later today with a former NATO allied Supreme Commander? Did I get all those things in proper today. order? Yeah, today. By pure coincidence. What are you talking about? Are you uh, Admiral me? James Stavridis oh, my is in town and, and asked me if I'd meet him for coffee later in the, the day. The answer is yes, well, sir. We, we made the commitment. Are you wearing, we made, that? Are you wearing that? No, no, I'll, I'll put on a tie. But we made a commitment, and I uh, and and it just so happens that like the day that we're scheduled to get together is the day that there's been this speculation about uh, war in uh, in Ukraine, and thank goodness it has not transpired. Michael Smirconish. Jeff is my friend. I regard him as a friend. Chris is my friend. I regard him as a friend. I have nevertheless felt obligated when there has been news on the CNN front to report it to you. Even though I'm kind of in this awkward position, given that when Chris was fired and it was Jeff who then called me and said, can you cover for a while? And of course, I did for a couple of weeks in in December. So I'm not afraid to address the uh, the ongoing events pertaining to the network where I am associated. And today it is page. It's a five person byline page one above the fold of The New York Times under the headline. For CNN's chief, walls were slowly closing in. And it's a New York Times TikTok of what just went on at CNN relative to Cuomo's firing and then Zucker's resignation. And on page one, there's this tidbit. I don't want to read to you the whole piece. It's it's long. I link to it. It's it's on Smirconish.com and The newsletter contains it today. Barely 24 hours later, a letter arrived at CNN. It was from a lawyer representing a woman who had worked with Mr. Cuomo years earlier at ABC News. She said he had sexually assaulted her and that in the heat of the Me Too movement, Mr. Cuomo had tried to keep her quiet by arranging a flattering CNN segment about her employer at the time. This is new. 
I mean, this is this is this is something I'd not heard before. And and by the way, I'm I'm not in, I'm not in any uh, pipeline. I hear nothing. I I hear only what you hear. I read, and you know, I, I'm I'm not in the loop. Is what I'm trying to say. But there is this uh, this new detail, and I'll tell you right at the outset. When you get far into it, Cuomo's spokespeople deny it. But this is what is most new about this story. There's reference made to December 1. December 1, CNN reporter Brian Stelter said on air that Cuomo could be back in January. So he'd been suspended. He'd not yet been fired. That night, the fateful letter arrived at CNN. It was from Deborah Katz, a prominent sexual harassment lawyer, and it was addressed to David Vigilante, CNN's general counsel. The letter was on behalf of the woman who had worked with Mr. Cuomo at ABC News. It relayed a story that had begun in 2011 when the woman who was referred to as Jane Doe was a young temporary ABC employee hoping for a full-time job. One day after Mr. Cuomo, an anchor, had offered her career advice, he invited her to lunch in his office. According to the letter, interviews with the woman and emails between her and Mr. Cuomo. When she arrived, there was no food. Instead, Mr. Cuomo badgered her for sex, and after she declined, he assaulted her, she said. She then ran out of the room. Later that day, the woman who was still seeking a job tried to smooth things over by writing Mr. Cuomo friendly emails. The Times interviewed five friends and former colleagues who said the woman told them Mr. Cuomo had made unwelcome sexual requests. She said that only in the past year did she begin to tell people that Mr. Cuomo had assaulted her, which she hadn't previously divulged because it was private and painful. The encounter in Mr. Cuomo's office at ABC was not the end of her story. Ms. Katz's letter said that at the height of the Me Too uprising after TV personalities like, I mean, so far he said, she said, right? She said, Unwelcome advances culminating in an assault, as I told you, his spokespeople say never happened. Ms. Katz's letter said that at the height of the Me Too uprising, after TV personalities like Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer were felled by misconduct allegations, Mr. Cuomo contacted the woman seemingly out of the blue. Ms. Katz's letter said that Cuomo proposed arranging a CNN segment about the company where she worked doing public relations. The woman tried to avoid any contact with Mr. Cuomo, but CNN ultimately broadcast a segment anyway. After years without any substantive communication from Mr. Cuomo whatsoever, Ms. Doe suspected he was concerned about her coming forward, jump page, with her allegations and wanted to use the proposed segment as an opportunity to test the waters and discourage her from going on the record about his sexual misconduct, Ms. Katz wrote. I found this to be significant. The, me, Michael speaking. The Times reviewed Mr. Cuomo's messages to the woman and the segment and spoke with her boss at the time. Her boss said that the segment aired, the woman shared some of the details of the encounter and Mr. Cuomo's subsequent outreach. Ms. Katz said the woman who's been deeply traumatized doesn't want to become a pawn in an internecine war between Zucker, Cuomo, and CNN, 
and won't be discussing anything further. She deserves and requests privacy. So I want to see that segment. There's no embedded link here. The Times says, but somebody's going to stay on this and uncover it. And and to me, with somewhat of a trained eye, I, I you know, I, I just want to see how outside the the standard fare, the norm of Chris's show is whatever that segment looks like. Because to read the New York Times is to believe that it, it'll stand out like a sore thumb, right? And then the question will become, well, who knew? Who knew that the reason allegedly that this segment was being done was according to that narrative, which Chris denies that it was all a payback. In other words, do you think when we look at the the segment, let's assume that like Mediaite finds it links to it. Somebody's got to be on that case right now, pouring over the, uh, you know, the records of, and, and, and some type of a, what did it say that it's a profile on her public relations firm. That'll be telling or not or not. Um, also, I don't know, just in the, the general realm of these sorts of things, the question, of course, I wanted to know about Prince Andrew, how much, how much the answer is a lot. Uh, the American versions of Prince Andrew settling with Virginia Jeffrey don't have the dollar value. But you know that he's just settled a civil suit that allows him to avoid this explosive trial and being deposed and further revelations. Apparently, you know, uh, when you read the Daily Mirror, as I do, the firm, the firm wanted this to go away, lest it conflict with the Jubilee celebration, which I guess really is is in June, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebration. The number is 12 million pounds. Hang on a second. Hey, Siri, how much is 12 million pounds? What would you like me to convert 12 million pounds to? Dollars. The answer is 16,297,000. Yeah, a lot of dough. Oh, I'm sorry. 16,297,926. Thank you, Siri. So a lot of dough. And, and you know what I wonder is, like, Mama has to be paying, right? He he is a uh, he gets a, a salary of two hundred and fifty thousand pounds or about three hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars from the queen. In some of the coverage that I read, it said that Andrew also owns a ski lodge in the chic Swiss resort Verbier, for which he paid twenty two million dollars in twenty fourteen. So I guess she's writing the check to make that go away. I know nothing about fancy Swiss resort towns but when i read that verbier it triggered something odd in my mind which is one of the greatest movies ever all 10 times that i've seen it is marathon man marathon man with dustin hoffman and roy scheider who plays his older brother and sir lawrence olivia zell zell and there's this scene, as soon as I read Verbier, there's this scene in the movie that I thought of where uh, Dustin Hoffman has met a woman and Roy Scheider, his older brother, who's somehow caught up in like intelligence work, the three of them go to dinner 
and Roy Scheider is sizing up the girlfriend of Dustin Hoffman and asking her where she's from. And when she drops Verbier as the town where she's from, he immediately knows she's a fraud. I'm not really that familiar with Switzerland. What part are you from? A tiny place. Thank you. Verbier. Verbier? Yeah. Oh, I don't believe it. What? There's this guy that works in my office, a ski bum. A real pain in the ass about skiing, excuse me. But he's always going on about Verbier. That's right at the mount of uh, at the foot of Mount uh, Rosa, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He says it's some of the best skiing in the world. Mm. Is that true? Of course. Is he hundred percent right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, then you must know Claude Lassure, the instructor there. Have you skied with him? Yeah. Where is it? Verbier. Verbier. I've made all this up. There is no Mount Rosa in Verbier, and there is no Claude Lassure. You're not Swiss. What are you? What are you? Isn't it great? Now you want to go watch that movie. Did you just give something away? Right. Or so I'm, I I'm enjoy agreeing, it? Like, like, you know, he's got uh, this house and, and he's had to sell it to settle this. Oh, my God. There it is. Marathon Man. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. Listen, there's one more thing that I want to I want to explain this hour because I've worked through all the headlines where uh, I have things uh, top of mind that I wish to say. And there's one more that I want to address. I fear that Bob Saget's family is making a mistake. I understand that they don't they don't want medical records and they don't want private information about his passing in the public domain. But I fear that they are going to only spur more conspiracy thinking. And look, it's unusual. I've watched these these experts, individuals with with far more expertise than the host of this program talk about how. You know, somebody banging their head, thinking they're okay, going to bed is not all that unusual. But when I read that it's it's a baseball bat-like uh, injury, I say to myself, I hope someone, surely they're going and getting the electronic room key record and looking at the video and just making sure, like, nobody got in that room, right? I hope so. Well, someone had to. I mean, how could this not be a homicide if it's that much of a hit? That's what I'm asking. That's what That's I'm impossible. asking. The family this of is to completely change the story. The family of Bob Saget has filed a lawsuit to block the release of records from the investigation of his sudden death. Court documents show the comedian and actor who was most famous for his role as Danny Tanner in the sitcom Full House found dead in his Florida hotel room on January 9. He died from head trauma. His family said last week the chief medical examiner for Orange and Osceola counties said that the manner of death was an accident. On Tuesday, his wife, Kelly Rizzo, and three daughters filed a lawsuit against the medical examiner's office and the Orange County Sheriff seeking injunctive relief to prevent the release of any records, including photographs, video and audio recordings and statutorily protected autopsy information. I I get not wanting to have autopsy photographs oh, in the public God, domain, of course. but they I think there's do that anyway, would they? But I think that there's got to be some level of information released so as to dissipate the people who are just going to use this now forever as saying, "Well, you know what happened to Bob Saget." Quote: Plaintiffs will suffer irreparable harm in the form of extreme mental pain, anguish, and emotional distress if defendants release the records in response to public records requests or otherwise disseminate records for any other reason or purpose. 
The complaint contends that media outlets have filed or plan to file public record requests seeking the release of the records and argues that no legitimate public interest would be served by their release. They cite legitimate privacy interests and seek to block yada, yada, yada. That's the situation. Okay, I understand not wanting the pictures. I completely understand that. But don't you think we will eventually know if if something else happened or some other finding? This can't be the end of it. I don't, I'm just suggesting you don't hit. That, I mean, you don't hit that your head yourself with that much force and then just go to bed. He, he, well, do your, I mean, you know what they say, if you have a head injury, don't go to bed. Don't, don't go to sleep I, I know, unless but, you know. Okay, that's if you sort of knock yourself. This is sounding so much worse than that. The night before he died, he did a show at the Ponte Vedra, Vedra Concert Hall in Jacksonville. He was found unresponsive in his hotel room at the Ritz Carlton in Orlando in a supine face upward position on his bed. Um, I, you know, I was just in that area speaking. Remember I, I used my Instagram and I, I was staying at this place that had this massive indoor, there's like a woman doing trapeze and inside out, you know, out my balcony, Yeah, yeah, yeah. same area. I didn't know they had a Ritz. I was at the wrong hotel. Oh boy. The Smirconish podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.